Welcome to the Discipleship Discussions podcast. We believe everyone can be a disciple who makes disciples. Our goal is to help you with this process. Each week, we take the lesson taught through basic discipleship and break it down in a discussion format. Now, let's join today's discussion. Hey, welcome back to our podcast. So grateful that you are joining us. My name is Benji Linder, and with me, as always, is Dr. Patrick Latham. Uh, we're in this new study, The Basic Doctrine of the Bible. And what we're looking at today is the topic of inerrancy. Um, so before entering into seminary, never heard of this term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first semester, uh, first class, 8 a.m. class was Christian Doctrine. And I remember when we got to this subject, my whole world seemed to be shifting around me because I've never heard of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I never knew the background. <clears throat> I was so ignorant. I didn't even think about the fact that the Bible wasn't written in English. I mean, I was mm-hmm. that unchurched. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was a little embarrassed. Never told them at seminary. Like, like, yeah. wow, this just dawned on me. Uh, but now I, I say that openly just to connect with unchurched folks. But uh, why should a believer hold to the inerrancy of Scripture? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we could write a whole book on that mm-hmm. question. It's a good Those question. Those have, yeah, people have done that. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, just nuts and bolts, daily life, practical, you got to be able to trust it. You know, if, if you're going to use the Bible as a book upon which to build and base your life, mm-hmm. you got to have the trust that it's a sure foundation. If you ever bought like the toys for your daughter, for Brooklyn, we bought a couple. Yeah. A lot but, of them are But you, you buy mm-hmm. them and you get like the little instruction manuals. Yeah, they're yeah. in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you ever get one where it's not too trustworthy? You can tell, like, going back to English, yeah. you know, the original language probably wasn't English, and you're like... Oh, the grammar's terrible, and you're yeah. like, that's not a prepositional phrase there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. So, so then you're trying to put this thing together, and, man, you can't understand or you can't trust the instructional manual. So, so I would say, you know... That's so many things we could say in reply to that question, maybe a more. But for me, that's just like for, for the everyday man, mm-hmm. for the everyday family, for the people in the pews, like real life, even people aren't in church. Like here, here's why we should believe. Here's why inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error is important, because the moment we deny that, then it's no longer a trustworthy book. And then we're left for a free-for-all where Book of Judges, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, mm-hmm. and we're grasping for straws. That's right. What about you? You got anything to add to that? No, I would say if the Bible is not inerrant, our faith can't be true. Like yeah. I hold to that degree where if I thought there was any error within mm-hmm. you know, the Scriptures, then our faith is shattered mm-hmm. uh, because here we are believing in something that's not 100% true. And so that's the level that I hold inerrancy to. So if, if the Bible's not inerrant, then my faith is not true. And yeah. so, uh, Jerry Vines had a, a sermon. I think it was he had like a popular sermon that he preached at the, I think, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, before my time of going to the Southern Baptist Convention when all was going on with the Southern Baptist conservative resurgence, which was really um, in large part a, a war over inerrancy, a, a fight over inerrancy. Um, but I remember him telling the story about, you know, a guy on his deathbed and his preacher didn't believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And in his, in his preacher had, um, 
told him for years all these different errors in the Bible. And so the man had cut out, you know, the portions of the Bible that supposedly had errors. So he's on his deathbed and he goes to grab the Bible. Of course, it's an anecdotal story. I don't think it's really happened, but he goes to grab his Bible and he, he wants a promise as death draws near, but he opens his Bible and all he finds is pages with holes in it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, great story, maybe anecdotal, but it pre- that's always stuck with me. When we start to cast doubt on the truthfulness, veracity mm-hmm. of Scripture, then we're in a bad place when it comes to our soul. And how do we have guidance, light from God, if we don't believe in inerrancy? Absolutely. Uh, and that was a big debate, the Chicago um, mm-hmm. Statement of Faith, is that what it's called, about inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah. Um, that came out in 1990. Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe before that. Um, I knew it at one point. I knew it for the test, and I passed it. Uh, but let's talk about the Baptist, the Baptist, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It reads, It, the Bible, has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Now, some would say that the Baptist faith and message, when it says the Holy Bible, they're talking about the original manuscript. So the original manuscripts, which we do not have today, we don't have the originals, we have copies of the original. So they're saying just originals are argument are inerrant. Now, there are others that would say what we have today is without error when it comes to doctrine, and they're in that camp where we're still saying it's inerrant. We're just not going to call a scribal error an mm, error. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that whole argument there? Yeah, I think you know, in the midst of all that, and upcoming episode will be on preservation. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that's lost by a lot of people mm-hmm. is that the Lord promised to preserve His Word, to keep His Word, to safeguard it forever. And that, you know, also the Word of God is eternal, that it's one with Christ, the Logos. Uh, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven, the psalmist says. So um, you have to have a bigger view of the Word of God, that it's internal, eternal, existed before time began. Sure, inspired, delivered, um, written, but then also promised to be preserved. Mm-hmm. So um, in all of that, I think that first group you mentioned where they just say the originals were without air, they're overlooking the words of Jesus where he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Mm-hmm. So when you have that conviction that he promised to preserve his word, then you say, hey, and even if it's another language, we don't have the originals, then... Um, you can still have the confidence that it is the Word of God and that it is without error. Mm-hmm. Anything you'd add to that? No, that's absolutely right. I go back to my first answer to the first question is, if what we have today has errors in it, then my faith can't be mm-hmm. true. Um, so let's talk about scribal errors. And this is what some, and we're going to get to one uh, mainliner uh, that likes to use uh, scribal errors as a defense to say the Bible's full of errors. So yeah. def- define for us what a scribal error would look like and maybe how we can understand some of those even within what we have today. Yeah, so um, talk about scribal errors. You, um, apart from that, you also have the idea of just scribal notes and additions. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that may look like, you know, I was preaching through Mark recently, and we came in one chapter, it was verse 27, I remember, it was not in the Christian Standard Bible that we're using. And, you know, you go back, textual critics have studied that, and they really believe that that verse 27 
was somewhere the copyist along the line, the people who were copying, you know, wasn't wasn't printing as we have now. Mm -hmm. These copyists who were copying maybe made a note out to the side. Somehow that note got added as being verse 27. And this even happened before there was verses. So Mm -hmm. somehow it got added into the text. So even those things that may be viewed as errors, those aren't really errors. Uh, There was a copyist making notes or someone who had the manuscript making notes at some point, and somehow it was accidentally added later. So um, that wouldn't be a, a place as error. There's also things that you could consider, consider variations because of copying different methods, different techniques over the years, where there's variations between all of the Greek manuscripts we may have for a New Testament book. So... You know, all of that, instead of disproving Scripture, in one way should uphold uh, the uniqueness of Scripture when you consider that for New Testament books, we have so many Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts, don't have the originals, but so many Greek manuscripts that back up, that support the book we call the Bible. Far outweigh, they far outweigh um, the Greek manuscript evidence will have for other works of antiquity that are often venerated in academia, like Homer's work. So uh, the, the plethora, the, 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 the great number of manuscripts we have are evidence that the Bible is indeed a unique book. And then you do have variations. You did have copyists. Um, some would place fault on them. Some would um, maybe claim that there were errors. When you study the history of the, the methodology of the exactitude and the precision that these copyists um, took in, in, in preserving Scripture, then that gives you a higher regard. We, hey, give the guys a you know, break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give them a Kit Kat. That's know? right. They need so, one. Um, but at the end of the day, you um, at the end of the day, you trust preservation by faith, and you know that the Lord used a process of preserving Scripture through copyist. Um, and then I'd say this: many of the supposed errors can be easily addressed. Not that there's. I'm not trying to say there's not difficulties. But a lot of supposed errors can be easily addressed. I've been preaching through Mark, and I come to so many. Um, so, you know, I can think of examples off the top of my head, like one where you have um, shortly after the um, around the time of right before Jesus goes into the triumphal entry, Mm -hmm. he approaches Jericho, and he heals blind Bartimaeus. So in Mark, he says, I believe he says that as, let me me just look it up real quick. It's Mark chapter 10. It says, uh, they were on the road, um, no, excuse me, they came to Jericho. So then one of the other gospel writers said that this event happened as they were leaving Jericho. So people, there you go. There's an error in the Bible. Now this is a a special type of challenge that you see many times in the New Testament. This is a 
a supposed error that can be be explained away by understanding the first century world. And when you study the background, you know that there was two different parts of Jericho, the old city and the new city. And when you study, you learn that this man was met, met Jesus on the roadside in between the old Jericho and the new Jericho. So technically, he was approaching Jericho, the new Jericho, and he was leaving the old Jericho. So you have those types of supposed errors where just understanding Bible background will help you. You have other types that are just like, hey, you need to understand it's a gospel writer or a prophet speaking from his own perspective, mm-hmm. his human perspective. You call that um, you know, giving a different perspective. Another example there from um, the Gospel of Mark, Mark says that it was James and John who came and requested, let us sit at your right and your left. Matthew tells us it was James and John's mother. Is that an error? I don't think we have to believe that. I mean, she could have easily in private said, can you make, I mean, surely the mama probably got together two boys and, you know, you could see that happen. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll talk to him tonight before supper. Y'all hit him up afterwards, you know, something like that. So, you know, we don't have to view those things mm-hmm. as errors. Then you also have a thing where what you would call it, it's funny because my son, 11, year old, 11 years old, asked me about this recently. Um, he didn't use this word, but I told him, I said, that's an instance of a phenomenological, I think I got that right, phenomenological. Sounds right. Yeah, a phenomenological description. So the idea is one is describing from their perspective what they saw. Mm-hmm. So like example, from the rising of the sun to going down to the same. Do we say the Bible's an error because it says the sun goes up and comes down? My son even asked me, why does the Bible say that? Sun don't come up, sun don't come down. We're rotating around the sun. I'm like, you're 11. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I, I, I didn't like, know that. Part how, how do you have uh, questions like that? Right. But then I try to say, hey, it's what we call, and I just use that really big word on him to silence him. Mm-hmm. I know big word, son. Don't question me. That's right. So, no, but I use that word on him to say, that's in the Bible sometimes. We have the authors describing things from their perspective, mm-hmm. and um, we've got to be comfortable with that. Yeah, progressive revelation is also key to that. When you mm-hmm. prime example, they thought the earth was flat. Yeah. That's all they knew. Yeah. That's all they knew. And you only know what you know. Yeah. And so there's a there's a thought for you today. That's a quotable deal. You only yeah. know what you know. Yeah. Um, and so we see progressive revelation playing a part, you know, going from Old Testament, what they knew to be true uh, versus what we know today. And I like what you said. Everything that would, um, and we'll just jump right into this. Bart Ehrman would say that the Bible has over 400,000 errors. If you look at all of them, you can explain all of them. You don't have to make an excuse for a single one. Um, and, you know, some of them are a little more difficult than others. I mean, it takes context, knowing that Jericho, old Jericho, new Jericho. Then others you look at and you're like, what he would classify of, as an error would be if you stack all the ma- copies of the manuscripts next to each other and there's any difference. Like if they did a prepositional mm-hmm. phrase in backwards order, yeah. that would be an error. And so what he classifies as an error, I would not classify yeah. as an error. Um, so, and we know where Bart Ehrman stands on that. And so, uh, but what is your response to such a claim that, you know, 400,000 errors are in the Bible that we have today? Yeah, I think we've given a lot, a lot of response there already, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know that there's there's different types of supposed errors mm-hmm. that you can address 
easily. Um, you know, there's also the idea that you that we have to be comfortable with God's process of preservation. Mm-hmm. That you know, He left us all these manuscripts where um, we can discern and discover, not determine, but discern and discover what is the Word of God by comparing. He's given us intellect to engage in what we call textual criticism, uh, to compare apples to oranges, use logic to say, okay, this appears to be what is correct. Um, You know, I'd say also a big key thing is that none of those variations affect any major doctrines. That's right. So that's a huge thing there. But then I would close with the idea that at the end of the day, um, it comes down to faith. And so, you know, we could engage in a scientific method to discover what is the Word of God and try to argue for its veracity. I think, don't hear what I'm not saying, I think we can do that to a degree. We have a sure foundation. This book has more archaeological evidence and um, manuscript evidence to back it than any other book of antiquity. So we can engage in that. But at the end of the day, um, if someone, there, there's, there's a need for faith, just believing what God said about His Word. So it's kind of faith and reason, but it, there's got to be faith involved. And at the end of the day, if you don't want to believe the Bible and you don't want to believe in God, you won't. Right. You know, like if you, if you want to have a reason for not believing, it's what Frank Turek in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he talks about the volitional reason that the soul says, I do not want God. Mm. And so you can easily, if you want to, uh, try to, to build this straw man to say the Bible's not true and um, it's an error. I can't trust it. And then at the end of the day, what you got is that you're your own God with a lowercase g. Mm-hmm. So That's right. Those are all solid points, and I hope as an audience this was informative to you and a layer of discipleship in your life. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. We hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us today for our discussion on Basic Doctrine of the Bible. Stay current with other episodes by subscribing to our podcast. For show notes, visit us online at basicdiscipleship.net. If you have any questions about the materials presented in this discussion, or if you would like to give feedback, email us at info at basicdiscipleship.net. Thanks for listening.